Yeah, let's give a hand to all those who served. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. So um, Sarah from Foothill, she said that we did a lot more than she even expected that we possibly could. And she was really blessed by it. And it was already talking about having us back. And so thank you to everyone who participated. That was awesome. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, if you're just joining us here, we are in the middle of a three-week series called Can God Really Use Me? And I remember uh, you've, you've heard me talk a lot about being in East Asia. And I remember um, taking my kids to preschool and I was the one that happened to have a vehicle. And so I took about five or six kids, including my own, to preschool every morning in East Asia. And you've probably heard some of these horror stories of traffic. You've heard of traffic jams that have stretched for miles, lasted for days, right? Um, probably people even like starving and, and stuff like that. It's horrible. Well, it's all true. <laughs> it is just nasty. And so what I did is I had this big old awkward electric tricycle and my wife had made these five-point harnesses, and I'd, every morning all the neighborhood American kids would come in, I'd strap them into this tricycle, and that way we could sort of weave in and out and wouldn't have to deal with traffic. And um, yeah, Parents Magazine got a hold of it. It was ugly. It was just awful. Um, no, but eventually, so I, I got convicted. I realized, okay, this tricycle is not the safest way to, to you know, be this little preschool bus. And so we got a minivan, and then I had to come face-to-face with East Asian traffic and walk with Jesus in the midst of that. And it was really difficult. So I remember one particular morning, so I had the kids and uh, one of the kids I had was this little girl named Madison. Madison's awesome. Um, She and my daughter Hannah actually just got done doing a a mission trip. They were each in in different locations, but uh, Madison's great. She's from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And uh, so she had this little accent, little Mississippi accent. She'd show up with her bowl of grits and her can of Coke every morning. And she'd sit in the back of my van. And so one particular morning we were driving and what would happen is if people didn't want to wait behind you, they would just go around you. So they would go around me going the opposite way in traffic. Well, the people that were going the right way on traffic would come, they'd meet head on, everything's locked up. And this happened and I knew I'm not getting these kids to school. This is crazy. So I did what any good missionary would do. I rolled down my window and I started screaming at the person in what my kids probably thought was the gift of tongues. And um, the people there thought, you know, this is great Mandarin, but this guy's really rude. Um, So I'm screaming, where'd you get your driver's license? And you have no business being here. And why can't you just wait? And you're messing all this up. I hear this little voice in the back seat from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Mr. Bratton. Mr. Brett, my daddy would never, ever roll down the window and scream at these people. <laughs> Man, you know, her dad had been there longer than I had. Um, he was doing a great work, and I immediately, you know what, Lord, why am I even here? Really? I'm shouting at the people that I came to, to preach the gospel to? I was ashamed. Really, why would you even use me? Why would you take someone so broken, so messed up, and bring me to this place. I should just go home right now. I'm useless to you. And I hear this little voice in, in, the, in the back seat. Mr. Brat, my daddy would never roll down the window and, and scream at these people. He'd open the door, he'd get out of the car, and he'd go start banging on their door, and then he would <laughs> scream at those people. <laughs> wow. I'm a pretty good missionary. No wonder I'm here. No wonder he's, he's the one that should go home, right? I'm pretty good. 
you know, these people could use a good dose of what I have to offer. Like, thank you, Lord, for bringing me here. And so, yeah, we like to compare, don't we? We get in this comparison mode. We're always in this comparison mode to see how we measure up. Some would say it's our nature. You know, it's kind of like we're out in the ocean and there's no landmarks. And so all we have to do, we look at, well, how's this person doing? How's this person doing? And we're always doing this. See, all of us want to be used by God for his purposes. All of us want to know that we are part of his work of restoring this broken world out of sin and death. And if you're just joining us, we, we, we've talked about how we, we sort of do three things that, that, that keep us from answering this question. Can God really use me? And sometimes we answer it negatively. He can't because of, of, of three ways. Sometimes we feel like we're waiting on God to use us for something big and extraordinary when really he's just waiting on us to notice how he is using us in the everyday and the ordinary. Second, we talked about sometimes we feel like our sin and our failures are unapproachable, unforgivable, unusable by God. We feel like each time we sin, it resets us back to before when we, we knew Christ. All right, Lord, I'm out of the game again. And really God wants to show us that he, our sin just resets us back to the cross. It's taken care of, it's paid for, he can use us. And sometimes we'll talk about today, we compare ourselves to others. And what that does is we wait, we're, all, we're sort of in this waiting mode as we compare we wait for God to use someone else more qualified when in reality, God is waiting on us to step out in our inability and keep our eyes on him. So as we're asking the question, can God really use me? Much of the time we do that as we're looking around in comparison with others. But that's not how God wants us to operate, is it? See, God, God is concerned with, he's concerned with the body He's also concerned with us as individuals. What have I asked you to do? What have I done for you? And of course, God's concerned about community, our brothers and sisters. But sometimes he says, stop looking at all that. Stop looking at the other and, and, and don't let that stand in the way of what I have asked you to do. And so that's what we see Peter. We're gonna keep looking at the life of Peter from John 21 today. And that's what we see Peter struggling with in our passage but before we do, we're going to get a little bit of background here if you're just joining us. So Peter, uh, we, we, we open up on John 21. We're on a beach. Jesus is there. The, seven of the disciples are there. Peter had just got done denying Jesus in a, in a huge way, three times. And not only that, he said, hey, if all these other guys bow out on you, I will go with you to the death. So he didn't, he didn't, only, he didn't only just deny him, but he made this bold statement. It kind of sets himself apart. And so the last two weeks, we've seen Jesus restore Peter. We've seen him ask him three times, do you love me? Once for every time that he denied him. And this third time, we see Peter actually finally broken over his sin. But God still has some work to do in Peter's heart. So we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to pick up at John 21, 17 to 25. It says this, he said to him, Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. 
And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him, that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So we've watched Peter get called by Jesus in the midst of his, his ordinary vocation of a fisherman. We've watched Jesus deal with his sin and failure. And now we see Jesus has one more area left in order for Peter to be used in the unique way that Jesus had for him. And that's comparison. So here, can you imagine this? Getting to know your life, sort of your, your life and your death laid out for you before it happens. What an incredible thing that Peter got to see in verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. That's incredible. Jesus paints this picture for Peter of what kind of life he's going to live he, and, and, and what kind of death he's going to die. What kind of death is he describing here? What does he mean by this? Well, history and tradition tell us that Peter was crucified. And that not only that, but, but he felt like being crucified, he was not worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. And so he asked if he could be crucified upside down. And so what's going on here is, is John is describing, Jesus is describing crucifixion. The victims would be stripped of their clothes, made to wear something like a loincloth. Their hands would be stretched out on the beam of their cross. And they would be led where they do not want to go, carrying their own cross to the site of their execution. And John wants to make sure that we know that. He puts it in parentheses. He says, I'm not talking about this contrast between youth and old age here. He says, I'm talking about the death by which Peter would glorify God. And so Peter had died about seven years before John wrote this book. And so the readers knew exactly how Peter lived and how he died. Isn't that interesting? But before the readers knew, John wants to make sure Jesus knew. Jesus was the first to know. He knows all of this. He knows how we're going to live. He knows the calling he has on our lives. He knows the death that we're going to die. Before any of this happened, Jesus knew. He knew for Peter, he knows for us. Jesus knew the outcome of that walk on the beach. See, for three weeks, we've been unpacking this walk on the beach, this, this, this scenario that they're in, and Jesus knew exactly the outcome. We want to know something equally amazing. So we have this prophetic vision. Here's how you're going to die. Here's how you live. That's pretty amazing, right? But you know what's equally amazing is that what Peter misses because he's comparing himself to John. 
So it's amazing what Jesus does, but it's also amazing. Peter, how could you, how could you do this? See, by focusing only on John, Peter misses the radical sacrificial life that Jesus just got done telling him that he's going to live. See, this is interesting. We need to pay attention here. This, this, Peter's death is part of this restoration process that Jesus has Peter in. So you remember Peter said in his sinful pride, even if all these other guys deny you, I will go to the death for you, Jesus. Remember that? Except that he didn't. He denied, he left, he failed. So Jesus rebukes the sin behind that earlier desire of Peter in verses 15 through 17. He deals with that. But then Peter finds out in an incredible twist, he was partially right. He would die for Jesus. So God allows Peter to be set apart and to have zeal and passion and die for Jesus by crucifixion. Jesus reveals to Peter that he will be restored to the point where his passion is holy, it's righteous, it's good. Jesus will redeem that. And he will ask Peter to die for him, just like he said he would. Isn't God good? So he looks looks past Peter's sin, and he knows Peter's heart, right? Peter is a zealous guy. He does have passion. He does want to give all for his Lord and Savior, but not in a good way. Not before Jesus dealt with him on that beach. But now Jesus redeems Peter's sin and gives him back the desire of his heart. That is amazing. And Peter misses it. Isn't that awful? So if Peter would have paid attention, he would have realized that Jesus was telling him he would be restored. He would have a place of prominence. And he would carry out the mission of his beloved Lord. See, Peter tried to make his own life of zeal and righteousness. He, he, he talked the big talk. He cut off a guy's ear. He wants to make sure he's right there at Jesus' trial. He tried to sort of do all these things. He tries to make this life where he glorifies God. And Jesus gives him a life that glorifies God, doesn't he? Jesus says, receive this life, this calling that I have for you. See, so many times we're stirred up. We're trying to make this calling, this life for ourselves. We try to do it in a holy way. We try to do it in a righteous way, a zealous way, a passionate way. It just just doesn't work. We receive life from the Lord. Our lives and our callings are not made, they're received. We receive life. We receive calling from the Lord. There's no self-made men and women in the kingdom of God. It's all received, isn't it? And Peter just receives this incredible mantle to carry. And comparison takes away his gratitude. So, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. So now the text says we see John kind of following like a little puppy on the beach. He heard this whole, follow me. And he's like, ooh, really? Where are we going? Let me get my stuff. Where are we going? So he's kind of following behind. And and Peter is trying to have this, this moment with Jesus. John's following. So Peter eventually turns and says, hey, what about him? What was he asking? What about him? Well, he had just received this kind of inside scoop from Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you just gave me some inside scoop on my life. Could you give me, could you sort of dish on on some details about, about his life? See, I think Peter wanted to know, how is John's life, how is John's lifespan, how is his honor, his glorifying you, his death? See, how does his calling stack up against mine? 
Is his life going to be shorter, longer? Is his calling, his mission going to be greater, lesser, better, worse? And, and so we ask, what about him? And we kind of see it's an inappropriate question, right? Because Jesus gives this little rebuke. Jesus doesn't answer his question, but he refers him back to this idea of death. And he says, if it's my will that he remain until I return, what is that to you? And then literally in the present tense, he says, keep following me. Keep following me. Peter, don't wait. Keep your eyes on me. Keep following me. Nope. Don't look at John. His calling's different. You keep following me. And so essentially hints to Peter that John has his own unique calling. He doesn't give Peter the details he wants, but he makes sure, I don't want John's calling to sidetrack you, Peter, from your unique calling. But can you imagine this? Peter just received what he probably knew was a call to be crucified. And then he, Jesus sort of hints, you know, John's just going to kind of, you know, he's going to remain. He's, he's going to what? He's going he's to stay alive until I come back. And that's not what he said, but that's how the community interpreted it. But it's still not a bad calling compared to Peter's, right? So if you're Peter, you're thinking, hey, can I trade? Can I have that one? You know, I'll see your death by crucifixion and raise you an exile on an island. Like, can I, can I have that? And that's kind of what we do, isn't it? I know that's what I do. I'm always looking across the aisle, always looking across the street. You know, especially as a church planter and saying, man, that person is, is more gifted. That person has more capacity than I do. And so I keep having to hear from Jesus if that pastor has more capacity than you, what is that to you? Follow me. If he plants a church bigger than yours, what is that to you? Follow me. And I keep having to choose to listen to that message more than some of the others. What is it for you? I know we all do this. In fact, I remember as a campus director in East Asia, missing all of the work God was doing on my campus because I always thought, Hey, there's somebody out there that's doing better. And I remember sitting down with my regional director one time and I, I was saying, hey, you know, I wish I, wish I was like this guy because his campus is, is doing good. He's a good leader. And, and I remember him looking at me and, and saying, have you looked at your numbers? Your campus is the most fruitful campus we have in the region. I had missed it because I'm always comparing myself to this other guy. Isn't that awful? Never gave God the praise never gave him glory for people that were coming to Christ, lives being changed, because I was always, 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 hey, what, what about this other guy? See, sometimes in our professional lives, comparison can be okay, right? It helps us know, hey, how are we doing? How's my company doing? What do I need to adjust? And it's okay. I've run marathons like many of you have, and, and, and looking at other people's times, I don't care. I don't care how I did it. It, it helps me push me. It helps me train harder, and faster and better. So sometimes comparison can be a good thing. But in our calling from God, there's no place for comparison, either in, in how worthy we are or in how qualified we are. You see, comparison does several negative things as we seek to be used by God. Number one, comparison always takes our eyes off of Jesus. It has to. See, comparison will never lead us where we need to go because God has a unique 
calling for each one of us. So my call to plant a church might be similar to the call to plant a church that God's given to other church planters, but my circumstances, my advantages, my disadvantages, they're all different. So it's going to look different. It's pointless to compare, isn't it? Because you will always be different. God has a, a plan for you, and, and it's pointless to compare to the next person. So here's a problem. How do we compare? How is it possible to compare ourselves with others without first taking our eyes off of Jesus? Try it. It's not possible. We have to put our eyes somewhere other than the sinless, perfect Christ. And if we're doing that, it's always going to be something lesser. So when we compare ourselves to either ourselves, we compare ourselves to others. How, how is God going to use me here? We always have to take our eyes off of the greatest, most valuable thing in the universe, the fountainhead of all wisdom, Christ himself. So we take our eyes, we stop looking at him, and then we start looking at something lesser, something fallible. See, in our passage for today, before Peter turns and looks at John, who's he looking at? Who's he thinking about? He's walking side by side with Jesus. He has to take his eyes off of Jesus, turn around and, and, and look at John. And that's the essence of comparison, isn't it? Comparison with others will always sidetrack us from focusing on what God has for us. See, God wants us to confront head on what are the responsibilities I have for you? So Jesus just issued Peter a personal calling and he's already sidetracked. So in addition to taking our eyes off of Jesus, comparison always steals our joy. Somebody said, nobody, nobody knows who said it. You can just pretend I said it uh, from here on out as you tweet it. Um, but the saying goes, comparison is the thief of joy. Have you heard that before? Comparison is the thief of joy. Now, that's not true when we're comparing ourselves with somebody worse off than us, right? Then comparison is the source of joy. Man, I'm glad I'm not like, you know, so-and-so. I'm not, you know, then it's the source of joy. But most of the time, comparison is the thief of joy. What does that mean? You see, for the most part, if I'm comparing myself to someone else, I'm usually doing it out of a place of weakness. I will rarely perceive that that person is as equally blessed, gifted, fill in the blank, resourced by God, glorifying to God, important. I will rarely perceive that the other is as any one of those things as me. I will always compare, most of the time, compare out of a place of weakness and say, they are better off. God has given them more. God has called them to something greater than he has me. You know, that's why social media was invented. There was a study that said comparison was at an all-time low in the U.S. And so like, we've got to do something. So they made up social media. So we can constantly lie to each other and, and compare ourselves. No, I'm sure it was, it was for some reason better than that, maybe. Um, but so comparison steals the joy. It makes us take our eyes off Jesus. And it also is the thief of joy. And so Peter's response, what about him, puts this immediate wet blanket on what could have been a very exciting calling on his life. See, if John would have ended this, this chapter with follow me, oh my goodness, can you imagine? Here's the death you're going to die. You're going to glorify God. And then, you know, this powerful, you know, British accent that Jesus probably had, follow thou me. You know, it's like, 
wow, John, just stop right there. This is awesome. And then we open to Acts 2 and, and, and Peter's life has changed. and He's leading people to Christ and thousands are, no. What about him? Oh, really? Follow thou me. What about him? Oh. So he doesn't end it. Jesus still has a little bit of work to do in his life, doesn't it? So if comparison is a thief of joy, why do we do it? Why do I do it? Why do we like to compare? See, I think, I think it has a little bit to do with this. See, as we ask this question that we've been asking for the last three weeks, can God really use me? I think comparison takes some of the uncertainty out of that. We look around and we come to a good rational conclusion that we are usable by God based on our qualifications, professionally and spiritually. And so we either, based on that, we either wait for God to use someone more qualified, more spiritual, or we just kind of jump into what other people are doing and try to do it better. So comparison takes the invisible God out of the picture and lets us deal only in the currency of tangible, visible markers that we can gauge our calling and our progress on. And that's why I think it's so attractive. It's harder to go before the Lord and get confronted with the fact that we've denied Jesus in word and action and that we really aren't qualified at all to be in his service. It's harder to ask God to use us. What if I don't like his answer? What if I don't like what I hear? What if he asks me to do something I don't feel like doing or I don't want to do? And so I think sometimes we compare with others because it helps us feel qualified or it confirms the lie that we just simply aren't qualified. But see, God never asks us to compare our progress and calling to anything apart from him and his word. Because he and his word do not change. He and his word are authoritative. They will always be right. They will always be true. So he never asks us to take our eyes off of what is holy and what is true and what is perfect and put it on something lesser, whether it's other people or ourselves. So God never asks us to compare our progress and calling to anything apart from him and his word. See, here's the problem. Comparison apart from God's word and the Holy Spirit's guidance will always give us a false positive in two directions. We either get, hey, I'm doing really good and I can just keep what I'm doing, period. Or I'm doing really bad and I need to do better, period, end of story. That's kind of the two false positives it gives us when we compare. But God's report through scripture is very different. God's report through scripture about how we are doing spiritually is always, I'm doing pretty bad and God is very, very good. See, Tim Keller puts it this way. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Isn't that amazing? So we don't get these two false positives in either of these directions. Hey, I'm, I'm doing great. Or eh, I'm, not, I'm really not doing that good. The gospel, the word of God gives us the truth. So a group called Igniter Media put out a video called The March of the Unqualified. And the video is a little dated. It's from early 2000s. And some of you are thinking, that's not old. Um, some of you are like, that's before I was born. Um, video is a little dated, so I'm not going to put it up here, but I want to read what it says. It's a great video. You can look it up. It's called The March of the Unqualified by Igniter Media. It goes like this. Do you think God can't use you, that he only uses perfectly qualified people? Take a closer look. Moses was not a great speaker. 
Jonah ran from God. Jacob was a liar. Noah got drunk. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair. Jeremiah was depressed a lot. Solomon was rich in wisdom, but poor in lifestyle. John the Baptist was just plain poor. Timothy was too young. Abraham was too old. Lazarus was dead. Sarah was barren. Naomi was a widow. Gideon and Thomas both doubted. So did Sarah. Peter lacked self-control. James and John were self-righteous. Paul had a short fuse. So did Peter and Moses and actually lots of others. God's people are not perfect. They never have been. It's the march of the unqualified. Want to get in line? That's great, isn't it? You want to get in line? So putting God's calling on our lives in terms of who's most qualified, that's an earthly construct that we superimpose on his calling, isn't it? See, Peter and John were fishermen professionally, and God asked Peter to be a shepherd. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Not literally, of course, but Peter doesn't know how to do that. And spiritually, neither one was qualified. Peter denied Jesus and at one point tried to keep him from going to the cross. John asked Jesus flat out at one point if he could have the second place, the second most prominent place in heaven. Actually, it's worse than that. He asked his mom to ask Jesus. (laughs) John at one point asked Jesus if they should simply wipe out with fire people from heaven who don't respond to Jesus' message. Neither one of these guys were really qualified spiritually to be doing this, were they? And they weren't qualified professionally. They were fishermen. See, here's the problem with simply being qualified before God to do what he's asking you to do. If you are simply qualified, then your own qualification is the limit, the ceiling of your ministry. That's as much impact as you will ever have for the kingdom of God is how qualified you are. But if you're unqualified, if you're unworthy, Jesus' power working in you through his Holy Spirit, that is the limit of your ministry. That is the limit of what he can do through you. And his power has no limits, does it? And so that is what we cling to and rely on moment by moment by moment as God uses us in the big and in the small that he's called us to. See, in order to be used by God, we need to know that we're more than just qualified. We need to realize how unqualified we really are. So in answer to the question, can God really use me? Sometimes we're waiting around for God to use someone more qualified. When in reality, he's waiting on us to step out in our inability and trust him and, and keep our eyes on him. Now, no doubt there's certain things in the kingdom of God that he's going to ask you to do that you need to be qualified for in an earthly sense, right? Some of that has to do with what we're gifted at. God loves to use us in our giftings, right? What we're good at. Um, Scripture tells us that we need to rightly handle the word of truth. So we need to be skilled in that. We need to be good at that. Um, That takes practice. That takes maybe sitting under a a, a pastor or teacher at times, paying attention. So there are things we need to be qualified at. See, Peter was good at what he did. Let's not miss that here. So ancient Near Eastern literature tells us that, you remember Peter's calling at the beginning, Luke 5, when he calls him? Ancient Near Eastern literature tells us, man, if they had multiple fishing boats, if he had partners, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and I don't think Peter was asking these guys to just mess over their parents and just walk away. 
I think that Peter, these guys were able to leave their business and, and walk away and it would be in good hands. All of that points to the fact that they were really good at what they did. They were very successful businessmen, very good fishermen. As a Jewish boy, Peter would have had a, a good knowledge of the Torah, of the scriptures. He would have memorized more than we could ever have hoped to memorize any one of us. He would have had these messianic expectations. I'm expecting the, you know, uh, uh, the, the Messiah to come back. He would have been well-versed in that. See, at the end of the day, Peter was a very adept and qualified fisherman. So don't get into thinking that, oh, God just wants us to be just ignorant, you know, useless in our profession. No, your vocation is your witness. Don't think my job doesn't matter, only my witness does. No, 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 no. Your job is your witness. The excellence with which you do it glorifies God, draws people to him, changes our world. God may ask you to use the things you're qualified in an earthly sense, and he may not. But see, here's what we have to understand. In our vocations, in our jobs, even if we are qualified at it, which I know Deer Creek is full of qualified people, even if we are qualified in it, we still need Jesus to break through and use it for his glory. So don't think we ever just go on qualification alone to bring the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. Remember my first job I got, uh, worked in an office in Colorado Springs. I was in, in an accounting office and I had just come off the, the mission field for a year. Aaron and I had just gotten married and this was a Christian ministry. I worked in the office. And so part of what we do on Wednesday mornings, we'd have a chapel and we'd give a little, they'd pick who gave a little um, thing from the word. And we also had uh, worship time, praise and worship time. And so word got out that I, I played guitar. I led worship for a lot of the different ministries uh, on campus. I led worship for, you know, crew and FCA and, and these guys. And, and so they said, oh, well, when you give the message, why don't you just lead worship too? And I didn't like to. I wasn't really good at it. I was really self-conscious about it. But I said, okay, I'll do that. I've done it a lot. I've played bass, i played guitar, whatever. So I did it. And in the audience was this woman named Carol Spires. And she was probably about 80 years old, about five feet tall, maybe 70 pounds, soaking wet. She's sitting there the whole time. She's just pasted on smile, just smile, you know, and just looking at him, playing, okay, Carol, Carol's getting it. She's, she's, she's worshiping. So I, I, I do that and we take a break. So little Carol Spires comes up. She puts a little bony hand on my shoulder and she says, hmm, you don't do that very often, do you, honey? No, Carol, I, I don't. Um, so sometimes God does use us for what we're qualified for. Sometimes he asks us to do things we're not qualified for. But here's what we always have to remember. We are never qualified spiritually to do anything apart from him. Never. Peter was a good fisherman, but nothing qualified him whatsoever to be a witness and a leader in the church. Nothing. He was a Galilean fisherman. Not an impressive religious resume, right? Nothing like the scribes or the Pharisees. And John wasn't any better. So here's the good news of the gospel. We are all unqualified. And by all rights, apart from Christ's work on the cross, none of us should ever be able to be used in his service. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in terms of our spiritual goodness, our worthiness to be called and used by God and called by his name. 
as children of God. We're all unworthy. We're all unqualified. But that's good news because it means that the limit of what God can and do and will do in us and through us is never going to be our own ability. So the limit of what he can do and will do will never be just our own ability. So at some point, these guys leave the beach. We assume they're not going to stay there forever. And throughout the book of Acts, we see them. But at some point, they all leave the beach and Jesus leads them outside of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. And he tells them exactly what they should be doing until he returns. That's great. So in Acts 1, 6 through 11, we read this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Isn't that great? He tells them what he's called them to do. Be his witnesses. And we're all qualified to be his witnesses. Why? Because he's with us. Always to the end of the age. So don't think, oh, we're, I'm qualified to be his witness because this, this. No, we're qualified to be his witnesses because he is with us always, even to the end of the age. See, he doesn't say, okay, it's time for me to leave. You guys got this. You'll be fine. You'll do great. He doesn't tell us that because it's not true. Again, he says, you will receive power. Remember, life calling power is received. We don't make it. It doesn't come from us. We receive it. He says, you will receive power. You'll be, he'll be with us. So we will never have to do anything without his presence or his power. Isn't that great? So he asks us to be witnesses. What does a witness do? They don't do much. They just pay attention and they tell the truth. Right? That's all a witness does. So he calls us to simply witness, to notice. What is he doing in us and around us? And tell others about it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Witnesses don't have to be creative. They don't have to make stuff up. They just pay attention and they tell the truth. If you ask a judge, do you want the witness to get creative? He'll say, no, we don't want creative witnesses. Just have them pay attention and tell the truth. Do witnesses need to be bold? No, not really. That's the judge's job. He's the one that's bold. See, and here's why I say that, because... A lot of times that's my biggest excuse. That's my biggest hesitancy. Lord, I'm not bold enough. I'm no Peter. I'm not cutting people's ears off and stuff. I'm not bold enough. Does a witness need to be bold? No, they're up on the stand. The bailiff protects them. The judge protects them. No, they just need to pay attention and tell the truth. So are we all qualified to be witnesses even though we're not bold? Yeah, yeah. Because we have the promised Holy Spirit and Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So what do we do with this as we wrap up? What do we do with all this? We start by telling others 
what Jesus has done in our own lives. We be, we're, we're witnesses. Because as we start to pay attention and realize that God is always with us, we'll quickly realize that, that we can be, he can use us. He can really use me. And that's when things get really exciting. We do what the disciples did. They witness what he did, and then they pray about who they can tell. So after the passage I just read in Acts, we, what do they do? They go out and start, start preaching? Not yet. They all go back to the upper room and they start praying. They just saw this amazing event and they go back up and they, just, and they pray. And then they witness before thousands what they just saw over the course of their lives. So we do what the disciples did, witness something, pray God would give us an opportunity to tell it. See, then our question, can God really use me, becomes a statement by just flipping two words, God and can. And it becomes God can really use me, doesn't it? God can use you here at Deer Creek as you jump in and serve, as you start a small group, join one of the ministry teams. God can use you right here. God wants to use you in your neighborhood. In September, we're starting a ministry called Christianity Explored. It's a very relational way to go through the book of Mark with people who may not be sure about who Jesus is. So start paying attention to people that maybe God's putting on your heart to invite. Or maybe you should go yourself. God can use you in the everyday lives of your kids, your family, your vocation. So change that question. God can really use me. We're his witnesses. He is with us. He has forgiven our sin. He's restoring us. And yes, you are unqualified. So what happened to Peter and John? As we go into communion, we'll end with this. What happened to Peter and John? You can read it yourself. I can tell you. No, I will tell you a little bit. The book of Acts opens with Peter witnessing, leading the disciples. So he, he's leading these guys. They receive the Holy Spirit. He's taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's preaching to, to people from all different backgrounds. You know what happens in Acts 4? Peter gets to go before Caiaphas, the high priest that tried Jesus when he denied him. Only this time, Peter is witnessing about the truth of what he has seen Jesus do in, his, in, in, in the world. Isn't that awesome? You know what's really cool, too, is for the first 12 chapters of Acts, we see Peter and John doing ministry, a lot of times just the two of them side by side. Isn't that awesome? Two of them side by side doing ministry together. Hey, what about him? Now, now Jesus has restored them. They know neither one of them should be doing this stuff, only by the grace of God, only by the presence of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to end with this. So that the, Peter, the soaking wet betrayer, denier on that beach that God used to build his church would one day write this in 1 Peter 4, 8 to 11. Listen to what Peter has to say after all this is over. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever.
Isn't that amazing? That the Peter in, in, in John 21 would eventually go on to write all these things. It's amazing, isn't it? Well, part of the way, part of the ways that we witness, that we bear witness, we show before one another um, what Jesus has done in our own lives is by coming to this table. And Jesus invites us to this table to be partakers with him of his death and resurrection. And so he promises, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And he always invites us to this table to be reminded that we are partakers with him in his death and resurrection. In this simple meal that we're about to partake in, he's given us a visible sign that he's with us. In fact, he said, do this in remembrance of me until I return. In this simple meal, as we feast on Jesus and are reminded of his death for us, even as we have denied him in so many ways throughout the week, he wants to take us back to the cross, back to how he has paid it all, no matter how far we think we have wandered. You see, when Jesus was in the upper room with the disciples on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is one of the ways we proclaim, we bear witness to his death. So scripture goes on to say that it's important when we come to this table, we come in faith. And so if you're at a place where you're unsure about your faith, you could make that decision to follow Jesus right now. Or you can simply stay in your seat. It's up to you. There's no pressure. Parents, if your kids uh, will be partaking, we need to be confident that they have faith in Jesus. And once again, if not, they can do that right now, or you can use it as a teaching opportunity, but they can stay seated as well. So here's how this will, it will work. You'll, you'll stand up. We'll go to our left, and you can go to any station that has the shortest line. We're very pragmatic here at Deer Creek. Um, so go to any station that has the, the shortest line, and there will be someone that will have the, the bread in the cup. And as you, you, you dip the bread in the wine, they will say, the body of Christ broken for you the blood of Christ shed for you, and they will say those things because they are true. And so let's stand, let's feast on Jesus.